If you would be turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, this will be verses 1 through 6 this morning. And as you're turning there, let me give you the key truth that I hope that we would be able to walk away with this morning. It's that God's grace is preserved and displayed according to his redemptive will in every generation. Let me say that again. God's grace is preserved and displayed according to his redemptive will in every generation. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Romans 11, 1 through 6. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as we step into this, uh, I want to ask you a question, and this is worthy of your consideration. And I know sometimes when you ask a question on the spot, it's hard to maybe kind of get at what you struggle with, but it's worthy of you even considering later today if you struggle to come up with something. But what do you struggle most with concerning God's grace? If I were to guess, uh, based on my knowledge of my own wicked heart and struggles, Part of the thing that we struggle with is we don't have control of it. We don't get to decide when it is displayed and in whom it is displayed, right? And also, we are seeing through a glass darkly and oftentimes can't see it ourselves because of our own blindness, our own circumstance, our own hurt, our own depression, our own anxiety, our own anger, our own wants and needs, We also struggle, I think, with grace because it's so radical, right? There are people that God picks that you think, wow, why would you ever pick that person? Why would you put me in a church with that person, those kind of people, those people who vote that way, those kind of people who have those thoughts, those kind of people who aren't passionate about what I'm passionate about. Why would you not make us all exactly the same? Well, more me first, have me be the image bearer by which everyone else bears the image. See, ultimately, whatever way in which we wrestle with grace, we are wrestling ultimately with just really wanting to be God. And we want to decide things that it is dangerous and, in fact, would be deadly for us to have the power to decide. It would be deadly to generations after us. It would be deadly to generations before us. And yet God persists and continues to do what is oftentimes absolutely baffling to us. But we need to wrestle with it. 
Now remember, uh, Romans 9 through 11, that if we were to read Romans 9 through 11 and not walk away recognizing and having a greater passion for God's mission in the world, this is helpful. You've misread it. If we read Romans 9 through 11 and we don't recognize that predestination and election should actually humble us and cause us to give thanks to the Lord because that means his mission can actually be accomplished, we've misread it. Does that mean we shouldn't have questions about God's grace and God's predestining work and God's election? No, that's not what that means. But what it does give us are some banks of the river in which to ask those questions in hopes of coming to some sort of answer, right? And some things we just can't know because we don't have a knowledge problem. Much of our, many of our questions about predestination and election or even God's mission and how he does what he does are ultimately personal. They're not really even noetic. We sometimes couch it in, well, what about those poor indigenous people deep in the Brazilian jungles? As if those are the people we really care about, right? And if you really cared about them, you would look at the products that you buy to make sure that they aren't deforesting that area of the world to destroy that culture. But that's a different story, isn't it? What we really are concerned about are some of the people that we love, some of the people in our own families, and praise God that we would be concerned for their eternal good. Yes, we should ask, why, Lord, have you not redeemed this person yet? Be, like the parable of the persistent widow, persistent in crying out, for as long as God graciously grants breath in the lungs of the unbeliever, the risk is still high that they can be redeemed. And praise God. And so we need to get at the heart of what our questions are really about because I don't think for many of us it is genuinely, purely knowledge. And I don't think that we would become better worshipers if we had an answer that we thought was satisfactory. If the fact that God has redeemed you in his grace is not enough for you to worship in spirit and in truth with some joy and some demonstration, which is actually part of the regulative principle, We'll get to that in the sermon series in October. That, that what answer is going to make you more passionate about those things? What answer is going to actually make you want to worship more? If you being redeemed doesn't start that party. So here we have Paul. And if you remember at the head of chapter 9, at the head of chapter 10, and now we have it at the head of chapter 11, Paul expresses while he is, he is getting into some very challenging things, remember, he's been quoting the Old Testament all over the place, uh, and we've tried to dive into some of that to give, give context. But at the beginning of each chapter, he shares some part of his own soul. He's sharing some part of his own story and passion for those who are lost. And so he does it here yet again. And let's step into the text. So remember, he had been walking with uh, his audience through, has, has God failed in some way, the people, uh, because, because he, he hasn't given them enough. And if you remember, he walks us through and says, no, everybody has heard. God has made sure in every circumstance, in every generation in the life of Israel that they have had someone to speak the truth of the gospel, right? So he concludes here, he summarizes just to make sure I ask then, has God rejected his people? And remember, he had just said, the Lord stands holding his hands out all day long to a people who have rejected him. 
Now, that was a quotation from Isaiah. And just so they didn't think, well, that's the old way. That's from the Old Testament. God doesn't really do that anymore. He wants to make it clear to them, no, this remains true today. And so he says, God has not rejected his people by no means. And then he turns to himself. He gives his own person up forward. So I want, to, I want you to pay close attention to the two examples that he gives, himself and Elijah, and why it is that he may have picked those examples, right? Well, let's pay close attention. So, so Paul, he says, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And by his example, he says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. I am Example one. So if you would, hold your place in Romans 11, and let's turn over to Acts chapter 9. We're familiar with Paul's story, but it's important that we step into it again in this particular context to be astonished at the very grace of God from this story. We'll begin in verse 1. But Saul, who also is referred to as Paul after his conversion, still, listen to this, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So you, you have to imagine, like we who are American, really struggle with this idea of freedoms and other things. But what if there was someone whose job it was to come and make sure, I mean, you think not having air conditioning is bad. If we were to have someone storm in here by virtue of letter of law and shut this down, you may think, well, you'd be starting some trouble. No, he wouldn't. It would start a panic because you would want to save yourselves, not everybody in the room like God does. You would want to, if you have children in children's ministry, that would be, and rightfully so, you would want to get to your children even if you had to trample over someone older than you to get there, right? And I don't hold that against you. That's just, I'm just telling you, this is what Paul would have incited in a room full of, uh, of people this size. This is what he was looking to do. In fact, this is what Jesus spoke of in John 16 when he said, there will be those who kill you and put you out of the synagogues and think that they do it to glorify God. He's a Pharisee. And he's doubly right because he's gotten letters from the high priest himself saying it is okay for him to do this. Now, what's interesting, and don't miss this point, where is Damascus? It's in Syria. Now listen, what was one of the things that the Abrahamic covenant said that the people of God were to do? Bless the nations. Now you remember the story at this point, they've kind of been scattered all over the Roman Empire. So Paul would go and limit the word of God going forward in a foreign land, in one of the lands of their enemies. This would have been Assyrian territory. Now, Rome is probably ruling it at this point. But why would he put a stop to the gospel being spread? Because he doesn't know any better. He's an enemy of God, and he doesn't yet know it. So it's important that we recognize that here is Paul, who is defying the word of the Lord in order to uh, make his way up the ladder, as it were, and prove 
his value. Now, let's notice what God in his grace does to a man who is seeking to hurt his own people. It says, Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See the identity of Christ with his people. Remember what Jesus said. He says, when they, they come against you and they breathe fire and they try to hurt you, they're not, it's not personal to you, it's personal to me. Now, the reason that's important to us is because he is reigning over all of creation and makes intercession and advocates for us and sends the Spirit and sends angels also to to do his bidding to help his people in all these things. And so he identifies with us. The question is, do we identify with him? He goes on. And he, being Saul, said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Now notice what Jesus didn't do. He's got one of his enemies pinned to the ground by his very presence. He could have destroyed him right there and moved on to somebody better, somebody more obedient, somebody who had more to offer than Paul. Right? Do remember, Paul wasn't a great speaker. In fact, he preached a sermon where some poor kid named Eutychus fell out of the window and would have died if it were not for Christ resurrecting him in the power of the Spirit. And even Peter says, you know, I, I got to admit, some of what Paul says is just, it's hard to understand. There ain't much punctuation. The sentences go on forever. My interpretation, Peter didn't say that at all. But it's implied between the lines. And so it's not as if he's now drafted a superstar. This guy has blood on his hands. This man has sinned in a way that none of us could compare with. And yet he has come for him as a display and preservation of his grace. Verse 7, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, I won't continue reading verbatim, but do remember that the Lord calls one of the disciples to go and get Saul because he says, I've got plans for him. And you do remember the disciple says, "Uh, I'm sorry, I must have misheard you. The guy you're talking about, that I think you're talking about, he is a murderous lunatic. And I can't see him in the kingdom of God. I can't see him as part of the fold. Like, you you got to be kidding me. And the Lord says, no, I have chosen him. I have predestined him to understand by way of suffering. Go and get him, which they do. And they feed him, and they they put salve on his eyes, and they help get him up and going. And thus begins the story of Paul, a display of God's grace, former enemy of God, who was tyrannical against the people of God, who ignored many aspects of the Old Testament to do what he wanted to do. 
What a beautiful display. So he, here we have a, a, an instance of someone who was as far from God redemptively as you can possibly be. And then Paul gives us another example. He then turns and says, Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? He appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there's a remnant chosen by grace. Now, this story comes from 1 Kings 19. And if you remember the story, Elijah had just had this competition with the prophets of Baal, right? And in fact, he flexed at a level that's almost ridiculous. He said, go ahead, pour water on it. I don't care. Make it as hard as you possibly can. You have 400 prophets doing their magic, doing their stuff. And then you have Elijah come along who is by himself at this time. Fire falls from heaven, the 400 prophets of Baal are incinerated, and Jezebel is incensed. Notice I didn't mention Ahab. And their goal was actually to destroy the lineage of King David, which you know any of the story of Ahab and Jezebel, they failed to do because the Lord always preserves a remnant. And now she was going to go after one of the prophets of God that she had seen the power of God displayed in and through. Think of the audacity. She just witnessed 400 of the best of what she's got be totally destroyed. Fire fell from heaven. There was absolutely no fight. It was much like what we see in Revelation 19 and Revelation 20. They showed up for the fight and there was none. So think of the audacity on her part and Ahab's part to think they could go and kill one of the prophets of God. And think of the fear on Elijah's part, even though he had seen the power of God, he is now on the run, believing that his life is over. And in fact, you remember, he asked for God to let him die relatively peacefully of hunger, by the way, in the wilderness. So here we have someone who is a prophet of God, who was chosen by God, who had seen the God at work, believes in him, loves him, and he now has found himself lost. He is rejecting the power and sovereignty of God because he is fearful for his own life. And we can associate with that, right? Like any of us would, would say, yeah, I'm, I'd probably put to flight too. And if you remember, the Lord feeds him in a number of miraculous ways and Elijah then is hiding in a cave and the Lord shows up. Now notice that is a consistency between these two stories. These two people lost in varying forms. One who was an enemy of God, one who was a friend of God. Both lost, and the Lord shows up personally to call them back to himself. And remember, there was this whirlwind, and it says beautifully that God wasn't in the whirlwind, right? And I think that is, there's, there's, there's a reason for that, because we often want to see the whirlwind. He had just seen fire fall from heaven and destroy all of the prophets of Baal. What other sign was going to be more convincing to him, right? What other sign was going to make him say, oh, uh, yeah, 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 I, I got it now. I, I, can, I can without fear follow you, Lord, if that one wasn't going to do it. And so God says, I'm not interested in the whirlwind. I just know that's what you were looking for. 
But instead he gives in this still small voice, which keys into something we've talked about frequently here, which the people of God are called to lean in and listen. Think of how hard it would have been for him to lean in and listen for this still small voice. We can barely pay attention when there are fans on in the room, right? Like it is distracting, but yet a whirlwind would have been a lot more because there would have been more than just, it had been, it had been wild, And yet this still small voice says to him, Elijah, where are you running to? What is it you're running from? Do you not know that I am with you always? And your confession that you're the last one is a a testament against my goodness. Let me just remind you, I've got 7,000 more just like you that I will use. So here's the good news. You can risk your life because I have a display and a preservation of grace in every generation. Fear not. Now that speaks volumes to us, doesn't it? That we need not fear getting it wrong. We need not fear failing in some way that, that and so we end up like the, in the parable of the talents, burying our talent. We just want to preserve what little we got. We don't want to risk any of what we have. We, we need not fear uh, trying to love our neighbors and have them turn on us and go against us or in some way, form, or fashion for a season. Because who knows what the Lord may do, how he may use how you endure to draw them to you, right? What powerful examples. That's my story. How Mama Gwen, every single day of my life, evangelized me. And I would turn on her and say all kind of horrible stuff, and she just wouldn't give up. And I ended up having to give up. Susan was there too, and she too. I tried to get Susan fired when she was pregnant. Yes, I need Jesus, and I am horrible. Many of you are going like, wait, what? Yeah, I did. I don't know why, Uh, but it's a true story. I'm not ashamed to tell you, well, I am ashamed to tell you that, but I know I'm forgiven. It is embarrassing. What kind of horrible person was I? Horrible enough that God needed to show up in his grace and call me to himself and break me. And so, praise God that that is true and that's what he does. And for each of us, we have different stories. Some of you, like Susan, like the prophet Elijah, has known God all of your days. Right? God didn't show up to save Elijah. He didn't do this amazing thing to call him on the journey. No, he showed up with Elijah when Elijah got lost. And for Paul, like myself, who was an enemy of God, trying to get one of, his sweet, one of the sweetest people in the kingdom fired while she was pregnant, among other things, showed up where I was the most lost and doing some of the worst damage I could possibly do because at the time the Lord redeems me, I had a men's faith deconstruction group going where I was trying to destroy the faith of seven other people who had professed the name of Christ. And so the Lord showed up and said, Cameron, you can't keep doing that. You just can't keep doing that because you're going to destroy you in the process. And I love you too much to let you do that. And so this, this is our God. And notice what Paul says. After saying this, he says, he does this still. This isn't old stories. These are not old tales. This is how God works in every generation. Take heart. 
If you are a Christian, you have made a profession of faith, and you find yourself currently lost in some way, form, or fashion, take heart. Be patient. You will not summon the Lord. He will summon you. And he will do so when you are most ready to hear his voice and can receive his love. If you don't know Jesus and you're an enemy of God and somehow have found your way into this hot box known as church, we don't do this on purpose. This wasn't like, we didn't turn the air off because I was like, I'm going to preach on grace and sin today. Let's turn up the heat. No, it's just off. And they haven't fixed it yet. But we need to recognize if you don't know Jesus today, take heart. He may be speaking to you personally. He may be talking to you personally. Maybe you don't hear an audible voice or see a visible light, but in some way, the Holy Spirit may enlighten you. Fear not the Lord's love and what he may call you to and how he may draw you to himself. If you are parents who have children who are lost, take heart. For the Lord knows the number of every hair on their head and he loves it more than you could possibly ever know. If you have family members, if you, if you have friends, pray with a confidence knowing that, that the Lord predestined, the Lord elects. How else could you get them to hear and see? How many of us as parents are so frustrated and maddened by the fact that our children can look back at us and say, I know what you're saying, I comprehend it, and I don't care. Save your breath. That actually makes me go, oh, you're so much closer to the gospel than you realize. That kind of confession is going to get you an audience. Sooner or later, you're going to get an audience. Now, I can't say that for 100% with great confidence, but what I see of how the Lord works, I have more confidence that that's possible to overcome their confession than I could ever have thinking I could convince them out of that confession. Trust me, I have swung as hard as someone can swing. Now, maybe trying to get their mother fired when she was pregnant may have something to do with they don't want to listen to me. But they've seen my life. They, they saw us fight for reconciliation, both eternal and racial and otherwise. They believe in all those things. But what they don't get is how it is that God compelled us to do that. And so I, the only hope that I can have, the only hope that you can have is that this God continues to display his grace for both the enemy that is lost and the Christian that gets lost. And without that hope, what do we have? And so just to make sure, because he knows our tendency, he knows that one of the ways in which we, we want to wrestle with grace, he says, but but if it's by grace, let me just remind you, because remember he said this many times in the book of Romans. He says, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. Now, unfortunately, we read this, interestingly, in the positive sense of works, right? Like we, we read it and we say, all right, what he means there is that you, you can't try to be saved. And that's true. He's dealt with that earlier. But really important to what we're going to hear in verses 7 and following is that we understand the context in which he is saying this. He's actually talking about the, the horrible things that you've done. The horrible things that you've done, the horrible works that you've committed cannot keep you from him. Because he's going to talk about how Israel has rejected and done all these terrible things 
right? And, and you actually heard it a little bit in our, in our uh, assurance of pardon. And God says, I use that too. I use your disobedience to save them. And I use saving them to save you. Who, who can do that? Who can use the mistakes of others to redeem and the redemption and jealousy that ensues to redeem further, if not the Lord our God? And so we, we have this wonderful opportunity to see God's grace preserved in us and, and I think this is really important, displayed in and through us. Now what's interesting is sometimes that display is in your darkest moment. And how you come out of that over time. Sometimes it's when you have messed up huge. I recently had to uh, go to someone in our presbytery and through gritted teeth ask for forgiveness for something I had done. I didn't want to. I thought I was, I was, what I'd done was pretty cool, actually. Kind of made me feel like a man. But I couldn't get around it. Like I, I saw this person and, and I felt it immediately. I felt the Spirit say, now. Now, and I went to him, and he looked shocked. Like, and all of a sudden, our, our whole demeanor between the two of us changed, and it felt, it felt like a weight was lifted. And amen. There is displays of grace in and through our sin. So when you sin, that doesn't mean grace cannot be displayed. In fact, you need to start, you need to head up, look to the right hand of the Father, not to the things of the earth, expecting the Lord who has hidden your life on high to display something of his redemption in and through you. Or in the other person. What a gift it is that we have this kind of eyesight and hearing that we are not bound to our mistakes and our failures. That's not a license for you to sin because you're going to. It is a license for you to be forgiven. It is a license for you to worship in spirit and truth. It is a license for you to pursue reconciliation and forgiveness. What a gift that is to a world that is convulsing under the weight of division and hatred and moralistic thinking. This kind of grace will get swatted into the deep seats by both sides, which is why we are not on those sides. There is no side, for Christ is reigning victorious. It's a great question that was asked of Joshua as he was about to enter the promised land. You remember the angel of the Lord was before him with a sword that was astonishing to him. And he was like, hey, uh, we're fixing to attack those people. Whose side are you on? If you remember what the angel of the Lord said, my translation, that's a bad question. The better question, sir, is whose side are you on? Are you on mine? Because I represent the Lord our God. Whom do you represent? That is essentially the question that is before us. Who are we? Who, who do we represent? Do we represent ourselves? Are we trying to bring an offering this morning to the Lord's table? What a gift it is that we're going to get to take of the Lord's table and be reminded that it is through nothing that you have done that you are welcome to this table. It is the finished work of Christ. It is the person of Christ as host who invites you to admit that you are a sinner in need of his grace, and that is true of both the lost and the found. I love the way Martin Luther puts this about this passage as he's talking about the apostle, and this is good for us to hear. He says, here the apostle concludes from the smaller to the greater. 
For had God cast away his people, then above all, he would have cast away the Apostle Paul. Remember, Apostle Paul was kind of a a small image of the greater problem. And if he would redeem him, how much more the whole rest of them, the smaller to the greater? Who had opposed him with all his might? But now, to prove that he does not reject his people, God accepted even one who was hopelessly lost. In this way, the apostle shows how firm God's gracious purpose of predestination and election stands. For not even the most desperate circumstances could hinder God's plan of salvation. Now, I would ask you and challenge you to consider this this Lord's Day Sabbath. How is it that God is preserving and displaying his grace in and through you for this coming generation? Don't go getting all false modest on me and saying, well, you know, who am I to determine what God's doing in and through me? No, you are. You should know so you can celebrate how God is working in and through you, not that you would be elevated, but that God would be elevated because left to our own devices, many of us would just play video games ad nauseum or sit and binge watch stuff on Netflix ad nauseum or watch TikTok videos for hours, hours, hours on end or waste our time in any other host of ways. It has nothing to do with the kingdom. So how is it that God might be working in and through, and this is nothing that you add to your life, how is he using you as a spouse? How is he using you as a parent? How is he using you as a son or daughter? How is he using you as a grandparent? How is he using you as a friend, a co-worker, a neighbor, and even more, an enemy? How might he be using you even in the very circumstances that you think are hopeless and that you don't want to step into and that you are perfectly fine with being divided over? But it is worth us considering this question because of who God is, not who we are. Because of God's grace, not our goodness or badness. So Romans 11, 1 through 6 teaches us that God's grace is preserved and displayed according to his redemptive will in every generation. And one of the great preservations and displays of God's grace is this table. Now, for all who claim Christ is Savior, for all who recognize their need for Christ as Savior because of their sin, you are welcome at this table. For those who would, don't know Jesus as Savior at current, who deny that he could save them, who want to rest in their own works, this ain't a good table for you. In fact, it's such a paltry meal, it will only irritate you. And for those who think they can declare who's in and who's out of the kingdom, well, this isn't your table either. Like if you are saying that there's a group of people who are undeserving of the grace of God based on what we've seen about Gentiles and Israelites, well, then we're trying to be God and that would be dangerous for us to think that we, we could be nourished by this. But for everybody else, you may be in process, you may be doubting, you may be wondering, it is this table that's going to nourish you and help you continue in that journey toward Christ who's already moving toward you in this table. And so as you receive the elements, if you would, hold them so we can take and eat together as family because we confess this isn't about individuals, this is about people. This is about the body of Christ together. So I want to remind us of what he said on that night 
where he was about to go to the cross. And here he knew he had the opportunity. He was wanting them to have something they could hang on to, a display and preservation of grace that would nourish them and help them. And he took the bread and he said, this is my body given for you. And in that statement, what he was saying is that that givenness was going to take away the fullness of their shame and guilt for their sins, past, present, and future, and satisfy the, the wrath of God warranted justly by all those sins so that we would never again have to fear going before the Lord, although there are times we will. But we need to be reminded of what Christ has done. And then as the meal went on, he took the cup and he raised it up and he said, this, this is the cup of my blood spilled for your forgiveness, the cup of the new covenant. And what he meant is that you will have a new life blood coursing through your veins and resurrection power so that you can deal with your weakness. You can deal with your fallenness. You can deal with your limitations in such a way that they don't have the eternal say. You can walk in newness of life. It will not be perfect. It will be a process. But it courses through your veins because the Spirit dwells in you.